The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome back to The Week in Art. I hope you've had a good summer break. This week, in the first episode of this new series, Afghanistan, we hear from an anthropologist and an Afghan artist about Afghanistan's people, art and heritage as the Taliban assume power again. As well as talking to the anthropologist Melissa Chiavenda and the artist Yama Rahimi about Afghanistan, we hear about a work being made in Notre Dame in Paris by the sound artist Bill Fontana, helping the cathedral to regain its voice after the catastrophic fire in 2019. Before all that, a reminder that you can sign up to the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. And while you're there, you can also sign up for a range of other newsletters. Now, the Taliban's rapid advance across Afghanistan and the capture of Kabul on the 15th of August have sent shockwaves through the world and plunged Afghan people and its heritage into new peril. In terms of culture and heritage, the Taliban are most famous, of course, for the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas, the huge 6th century rock sculptures blown up in 2001. For a special edition of our work of the week, we're going to focus on the Buddhas and particularly on the community around them, the Hazara people of Bamiyan province who, after centuries of persecution, had begun to rebuild their lives since the US invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. I spoke to Melissa Chiovenda, an assistant professor of anthropology at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi, whose research has focused on Hazara civil society, including the community's relationship to the Buddhas. Melissa, I wonder if we might set the context by just talking about what the Bamiyan Buddhas are. What do they represent? So the Bamiyan Buddhas are were, at least, because they're destroyed now, unfortunately. But they were these two giant statues, um, one 120 feet, the other 180 feet, that are constructed into the face of a cliff in Bamiyan, Afghanistan, which is... a small town and provincial capital in central Afghanistan. They were constructed in the 6th century during a time when there were a lot of different empires that were moving back and forth through the region. So, um, you know, when they were actually constructed in the 6th century, the Hephthalites were the empire that were in control. But there's actually kind of a much older and longer sort of cultural heritage that, that leads up to their creation. They are representative of Gandharan art and, and Gandharan civilization, which is really... Um, a time when in that period there were mixing of many different peoples and influences, artistic influences, cultural influences, religious influences, where a lot of people um, were coming together on this Silk Road area. And we also had, again, these different empires. So going back prior to when they were constructed, you had the Persian empires, which were very uh, influential in the region, right? So the Achaemenids and Cyrus the Great, who came through. After that, um, Alexander the Great um, came through the area in the 4th century BC. 
Um, and there was then after, you know, he was gone, um, a later Greco-Bactrian um, empire that continued some of these kind of classical influences. And then in um, around the third century BC, you started to have the Buddhist influences start to show up. There was a Mauryan empire that came from the Indian subcontinent and um, Punjab. Um, and then after that, the Yuchi, which were a nomadic people that later came to be called Kushans that established, again, a, a, an empire in the area and later converted to Buddhism. So, you know, all of these empires and peoples were coming through prior to the construction of the statues and kind of established this real, you know, incredible, rich mixing that happened in the area and that are then really... Um, symbolized in the Buddha statues themselves. So, you know, you, you can see in them, um, you know, of course, there are two representations of the Buddha, but they clearly have um, classical influences in this kind of particular um, human form. They have, you know, influences of the Indian subcontinent, also Persian, um, kind of all in them. They are part or were part of a bigger complex. There was a, a big Buddhist monastery just kind of built into this cliff wall. And so when you go around the area, you find all these little caves um, that have, you know, remnants of ancient oil paintings, actually where oil painting first came up and, and this sort of thing. So it's, it's, it's a very um, rich and beautiful area. So that's kind of the ancient past. And one of the things that you stress there is is the the diversity of influences in terms of that local culture. But you've specifically looked at the Hazara people, haven't you? Who are the people that are, are living in that territory now? And can you say something about the Hazara people? Yeah. So um, Hazara people are a Persian-speaking people in Afghanistan that many think are descended from Mongols, and Hazaras themselves some among them, not everyone, but some are starting to contest this idea a little bit. So this fits in very well with their relationship with the statues, right? So there's this story about, you know, the, you know, again, another empire, yet another empire that came through the area and established control of the Mongol empire. And then you have these Hazaras who physically look as if they are Mongols, right? And linguistically maybe have some connections to the Mongols. And so the story has been that they're just, you know, descendants from these Mongols. That's who they are. They were never in Afghanistan until quite recently. They were these invaders who came in from the outside. It, they, they kind of have nothing to do with this more ancient empire. Now, they're also Shia Muslims. They at some point uh, con converted to Shiism. And so a combination of their racial difference, ethnic difference, and then also this um, religious difference, um, because again, most of them are Shia Muslims in a country that where the majority of the people are now Sunni um, Muslims, means that they have been persecuted. They have been put down into the lowest rungs of society, particularly since the late 1800s when um, a, a king of Afghanistan, Abdurrahman, wanted to bring the entire country under centralized control, and he waged a very brutal war against Hazaras and um, it was basically a, a genocide and ethnic cleansing that took place. And targeting of Hazaras and mass killings of Hazaras have continued since then, um, including by the Taliban, um, notably not not only by the Taliban, but I, I think given what's happening in Afghanistan today, that's that's kind of important to focus on. The idea that Hazaras are not 
native to Afghanistan, that they're somehow people who come from outside, Mongols who come from outside and therefore don't belong, has been weaponized by those who have carried out some of these um, actions against them. So one way that they are countering this is by saying, you know, look, this, this isn't the case. Yes, obviously, we're somewhat mixed with Mongols, but we also, I mean, this is a place of mixing and we are symbolic of that ourselves, right? We ourselves are also related to earlier people who lived in, you know, this central part of Afghanistan, including those who built the statues. And we also have these connections to this, um, you know, Buddhist past or this past of mixing and this past of tolerance when all these different peoples kind of got along together. That's that's how they um, interpret it. And so the Buddhist statues themselves are seen as a symbol of that and a connection of Hazaras to the land that kind of more firmly roots them in that past. They have they have their own legends about the Bamiyan Buddhas. They call them Sol Sol and Shah Mahma. Sol Sol means something like a light of the universe and Shah Mahma is um, a mother of kings, right? But there's a legend that, you know, this was the son and daughter of some ancient rulers of the area um, who wanted to get married and the, the Sol Sol, the, the male, had to do a series of tasks which are kind of related to the landscape. Um, there's a beautiful lake complex in um, Bamiyan called Bandeyamir. They say that he created that and that he slayed a dragon. There's a feature of the landscape that is a ridge that kind of looks like a dragon and and that then they were able to get married. And after getting married, they turned into these, you know, rock statues and, and remained this part of the landscape. So the, the Hazaras do have these kind of um, old connections to the statues and then also newer connections to the statues where they're, you know, saying, this is, you know, who we are, we're these more tolerant cosmopolitan people. And that's also how they wanted to make themselves post-2001 Afghanistan, right? They were people who, you know, were trying to overcome this past of oppression. They were educated in very, very, very high numbers. They were like really behind um, you know, democracy building and these sorts of things. They voted in very high numbers. They were they were really buying into the new Afghanistan. And they would talk about themselves as saying, well, we're able to do this because we're linked to this, you know, past of mixing and whatnot. And and, and you see it in, in Yandaran art and the Buddhas and so on and so forth. Can you say something about about the, also the fact that, of course, before the Buddhas were destroyed, they were a source of tourism. And also, obviously, the, the Hazara people were working in that area and they were it related to their livelihood, not just to their sort of perception of themselves and identity, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly um, it, it was a source of economic revenue. Now, you know, so, something interesting, though, is at the time that the, I, I guess you would say the hippie trail was at its height, right? And all these Westerners were going to Afghanistan and seeing the Buddhas and, and you know, spending some money there and, and whatnot and, and supporting the local economy. Hazaras were, were still pretty oppressed and they weren't actually... Um, in control of the bazaar and town right around uh, where the Buddhas are. They got back into control of that after 2001. Um, but so there were some Tajiks who were kind of uh, brokers between the central government and Hazaras that, you know, after Abdurrahman's 
campaign in the late 1800s. They were put in place. But still, you know, overall, if the local economy is is better, um, you know, it's kind of better for for everybody. There was some ambivalence, right? Because, you know, these were at the, at the same time and are, right? Many of them are deeply religious people. And so, you know, for some, it was a little bit uncomfortable that there were, you know, representations of another God, right, that, that were right there. And, and so I heard a story from an anthropologist who worked in the area in the 1960s um, named Robert Canfield that he was you know, speaking to somebody who said, one year the economy was rather bad. And he said, well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that we have these, you know, Buddha statues here and, and God is not happy with us, right? But, you know, you know, on the other hand, I think, you know, for many people that was looked back upon as a really good time period, even if Hazaras were still in this lower social position. Peaceful Afghanistan, it was a time when, when the war wasn't happening. And, and yeah, people from outside were able to come and able to take part in tourism and, Everybody who came to Afghanistan, I think, had to go and see these these Buddha statues. Mm-hmm. So you get again had this sort of mixing and crossing and different people from different places coming in that, of course, came to a stop with the war when it started in late 70s. I mean, one of the interesting aspects of this, of course, is, is that in the Western reporting on the Bamyan Buddhas when they were destroyed by the Taliban, the Hazara people were almost erased from the record, weren't they? So that so there was this big focus on the Bamyan Buddhas as a sort of as a kind of example of international heritage, but they weren't established as having significance for a local population as well as the global population, as it were. Yeah, this is something that I noticed when I was going back and, and doing some research at that time. Um when they were destroyed in 2001, of course, it was covered extensively in foreign media, you know, at the Western media, um, because everybody knew it was going to happen. The The Taliban had issued a decree decree saying that we're going to, you know, destroy foreign idols in, or the country or, you know, non-Muslim idols in the country. And, you know, by the way, some of them include these statues and we're about to destroy them. And there were these, you know, huge efforts to, to get them to not do it. The UN was appealing to them. And I think, um, you know, a delegation of people from Al-Azhar University in, in Cairo came and, 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 and pled with them not to do it. Um, but of course, in the end, that they, they, they did. But, you know, every, all, all steps of this were reported on. So there's just a, a real trail of... Um, uh, media and articles and reports about this happening. And it is very rare that you would find a mention of the Hazaras in any of these articles, or if they were mentioned, it was like very briefly. And sometimes they were intentionally delinked from the Buddha. So they would be described as, well, they're these Mongols who came from the outside, so they have nothing to do with, you know, a Buddhist past in Afghanistan, which was not how they saw things, um, at least when, when I did my research there. They had a very clear symbolic and emotional link that they had established to the to the statues. So the the media would talk about, you know, this was a loss to humanity. This was a loss to a cultural heritage that should belong to the whole world. This was, of course, a loss to Buddhism. This was a loss to Afghanistan and what Afghanistan should have. But it wasn't really seen as a loss um, specific to Hazaras. And, you know, it was all of those other things, too. It was certainly a loss to um, you know, humanity and to Afghanistan and, you know, Buddhism. That, that, that's none of those things are not true. But for, for Hazaras, the destruction of the statues came to symbolize what had been done to Hazaras as well and efforts to 
wipe Hazaras out from Afghanistan, right? So many people in Bamiyan would say to me, my face is the face of the Buddhas, right? They would, they would say this again and again. Now, this is interesting because we don't really know what the Buddha's faces looks like, um, pointed out to me as well. They, the faces were de- destroyed a, a long time ago, um, but they were also probably masked somehow. We don't, we don't really know. But there are these oil paintings, again, that are in the caves that do show you know, people's faces and whatnot. And so people would say, you know, literally those those paintings look like us. And those paintings are clearly also what, you know, the Buddhas would have looked like. And so we look like them. We are them. They are clearly people that we descend from. So destroying the Buddhas was seen as kind of one more way that Hazaras were destroyed, like one more extension of what is seen as ethnic cleansing or even genocide against Hazaras. It was a very big loss for Hazara specifically. In a way, though, because of course we're looking back, in a way, the importance of the statues, I think, I believe that the importance of the statues grew exactly because they were destroyed, right? So that made that association to Hazara Hast and Hazara history all stronger. That's not to say that there wasn't, you know, this association before. There was the legend of Salsal and Shah Mama and there were these sorts of feelings. But it was like, how could you not see, you know, that I mean for, for the Hazaras, there's how could you not see that, you know, the Taliban have carried out numerous massacres against them um, in different parts of Afghanistan. Um the worst ones were in the northern parts, but also right around the Bamiyan area. There's there's a number of incidents where you know 300 people were killed by the Taliban 60 people were killed by the Taliban you know this and it and it happened over and over again and then also the statues that are quite literally i mean made out of the earth they're carved out of the face of the cliff and are made of the very earth that you know hazaras are trying to establish this link to themselves and then those statues are destroyed just as Hazaras are being massacred at at the very same time. So the the link is there, and I would say it's all the stronger because of the destruction of the statues. And then you have this very kind of um, I don't know uh, terrible, poignant you know reminder all the time because when you are in Bamiyan um, and you're just walking around, you can see the empty niches where the statues used to be pretty much from everywhere in the town. They're right there. They're right above the bazaar. And you just, you, you see them, you're aware of them. You have a constant reminder of them and what has been done because now the statues themselves are gone. And what remains is, is a void, is an emptiness. And so that emptiness and that void can also symbolize the Hazaras that have been killed and lost and that that continue to be killed and lost, unfortunately. Mm. And and talking of that, I mean, you spend a lot of time there, as you say, and you've talked to so many of of the Hazara people. What do you know about what they're experiencing today? Because, of course, um, as you say, they benefited from the occupation. They, the, you said that there was a high level of education since 2001 and, and, and so on. Can you tell me something? Are you hearing from people there today? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I have been in like almost constant contact with people since the Taliban was starting this really, I don't know, very fast offensive and, and then took over uh, Kabul. It's not looking good for Hazaras. The leadership of the Taliban made these promises that there would be general amnesty, that people would not be targeted, that um, you know people who worked for the government or worked with foreign NGOs and then, you know, um, vulnerable people such as minorities, such as Hazaras. So women would, you know, not suffer the same way that they did um, when the Taliban took control the first time. Unfortunately, there has been kind of every indication that this is not the case. So there are reports coming out of Afghanistan that Taliban are going door to door looking for people who worked for the government, looking for people who worked for foreign NGOs. There's starting to be reports that some of them are being killed. Um, you know, it's a little bit hard to see what's going on. Hazaras in particular have had just today an incident in Daikundi, which is a province next to Bamiyan. It's the only other um, Hazara majority province in Afghanistan, um, where 14 people were killed by the Taliban. Um, maybe, actually, maybe yesterday this happened, um, but I get news of it today. 12 of them were former soldiers and two um, were, you know, just kind of ordinary people, one a young girl. People were telling me that, you know, in this, as everybody was trying to escape through the airport in these last days as the evacuation um, was occurring and, you know, the foreign airplanes were pulling out as many people as they could who seemed to be at risk that um you know some of the taliban who were guarding the airport were denying hazada's access to the airport who had the proper documentation to try to get out um that some of the taliban as you would say soldiers were saying things to hazada's trying to get through the airport or who were going through you know if all these foreigners weren't looking at us right now. We would just put a bullet in your head, but, you know, lucky for you, they're still here, but, you know, they're about to leave. Um, so this sort of, um, you start to have these incidents happen and, you know, this sort of rhetoric ramping up. Um, so that's that, that's highly uh, concerning. At the same time, you've also had a few incidents where statues have been destroyed so it's it's kind of a reminder of what happened um with the Bamiyan buddhas although not nearly as important kind of ancient statues but a statue of um hazara political leader who was very important kind of unified hazaras um politically and made them a force uh, during the mujahideen period and who was killed by the taliban um as they were coming to power the first time, uh, Abdul Ali Mazari was destroyed in Bamiyan town maybe a week ago, some days ago. And then also there's a statue in Daikundi. Of, uh, there's a legend about a Hazara girl who was escaping from soldiers who were coming to, to, to kill Hazaras. I've heard different uh, versions of the story, whether it was Abdurrahman or a later time, but that she... Um, with 40 other girls to um, escape what the soldiers were going to do to them, jumped off a cliff and, and committed suicide. Um, her name is Shirin, right? So there's a it was a statue of, of uh, Shirin in Daikundi that that has also been destroyed. So there's really concerning evidence that both Hazara people are being killed and threatened and that also, again, you start to see this um, attacks on, on Hazara culture. So 
people are terrified right now. I mean, I have many, many friends and contacts who are just, you know, asking me if there's anything I can do to help them escape, uh, to get out. And I've been working on that as much as I can. There's very little I can do, but um, at least, you know, helping them to try to explore some of the different uh, visa programs that that are in existence to see if there's some way out. Also, because many Hazaras, you know, they bought in so much again into this new Afghanistan and whatnot. Many of them, many, 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 you know, were working with different NGOs or with the government. I mean, they they really bought into this in a, in a robust sort of way. And so, you know, they're at risk because they're Hazaras and then they're at risk because of the job they had and they feel very vulnerable, rightly so. They, they are vulnerable right now. Okay, well, it's very depressing, but Melissa, thank you so much for, for telling us about the Hazara people. Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this. Coming up, we hear from the Afghan artist Yama Rahimi, and Bill Fontana talks about the bells at Notre Dame. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. A painting at the Tate attributed to Paul Gauguin called Tahitians has been downgraded as a fake, Martin Bailey reports. The work is excluded from the authoritative catalogue resume of Gauguin's work, which has just been published by the New York-based Wildenstein Platter Institute. Its absence from the new catalogue resume was spotted by Fabrice Fourmanoir, a former Polynesian resident, Gauguin enthusiast, and now a researcher on the authenticity of his works. Although the Tate still accepts the painting as authentic, a spokesman says that it will now keep the work under review. The city of Amsterdam says it will return a 1909 painting by Vasily Kandinsky, hanging in the Stedelijk Museum to the heirs of Emanuel Lewenstein, a Jewish sewing machine trader, ending a bitter, drawn-out dispute. As Catherine Hickley writes, the decision, announced on the 28th of August, reverses the city's earlier position following a 2018 recommendation by the Dutch Restitutions Committee to reject the heirs' claim. It also runs counter to a court ruling last year that upheld the committee's much-criticised decision. The years-long case by criticism of the Dutch government's policy on restituting Nazi-looted art. Hurricane Ida, which made landfall in Louisiana on Sunday morning, has claimed one notable historical casualty, the Karnofsky Store, a Jewish family's former tailor shop and residence in New Orleans that served as a second home for the jazz legend Louis Armstrong. As Helen Stoilus writes, the store, which was listed on the National Register of Historic Places, completely collapsed when the Category 4 storm swept across the city. According to the National Park Service, which oversees a multi-site programme dedicated to the history of jazz in New Orleans, Armstrong worked for the Karnofskys as a boy and they encouraged his early musical talent. You can read these stories and much more on our iOS app, which you can get from the App Store, and our new Android app, which you can find through Google Play. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This month, Christie's presents Jasper Conran, The Collection, an intimate look into the celebrated British designer's country house vision. The definitive voice of style and taste, Jasper Conran is known not only for his influence in fashion, but also for his passion for the English country house. This unique collection, spanning fine and decorative arts, portraiture, sculpture, porcelain, furniture and more, will come to auction at Christie's London on the 14th of September, complemented by an online-only sale with bidding open now until the 21st of September. Works are on view at 8 King Street from the 6th to the 13th of September. Find out more on christies.com. 
Welcome back. Now, as Melissa Chiovenda said, the situation facing many Afghan people, including those artists still in the country, is bleak. To get a sense of the art scene as it was in Afghanistan before the events of recent weeks and the effects of the Taliban assuming control on the artistic community, I spoke to Yama Rahimi. He's an Afghan artist who studied at the Faculty of Fine Arts at the University of Kabul and was a member of the arts organisations, the Centre for Contemporary Arts Afghanistan, or CCAA, and the Third Eye Photojournalism Centre. He's now based in Germany. I spoke to him about the situation in his homeland. Yama, I wanted to begin by asking you, are you in touch with artists in Afghanistan at the moment? And uh, tell me what they are telling you. It's very sad to see that art and culture aren't able to exist more in a country. Art is the soul of nation and civilization. It's our identity. You know, I'm... I get in contact with many artists in Afghanistan. If I say during 24 hours, it's not wrong. Day and night, I speak with filmmakers, painters, contemporary artists, with young artists as well as with proofs, male, female. They are trying somehow to get out of the country. They tell me repeatedly with full of fear we have to get out of the country doesn't matter where what does it mean a trip without destination it shows how huge is the extent of oppression and crime so i'm really have a very bad feeling when i'm talking with artists in afghanistan i could imagine it must be very distressing can you say something about the scene that you last saw when you were in Kabul and um, in terms of the environment for artists before you left Afghanistan? Because you left in 2015, is that right? Yes, I lived in uh, 2015 and the situation for art and artists in Afghanistan was a little bit good. We young young people, a lot of artists, as well the, the artists, they work realistic and also the artists, they do contemporary arts they all were somehow active and that and that was our achievement we also had some exhibition can i say all around the world in germany america we were also in documenta 12 as well so that that was that was uh, that was a really a, a big achievement for the for the art community of afghanistan and now it's all opposite of that I mean, the Taliban have said that they are a different organisation from the one that was expelled from Afghanistan 20 years ago. But do you believe anything that they're saying? Is there, is there any evidence that they will behave differently? As far as I know, unfortunately, it's going to be impossible to have artistic or cultural activities from these days forward. And the reason for that is crystal clear. We would have a radical Islamic system and would govern by terrorists. In my opinion, in the world of art, it's all about freedom and creation. But terrorist groups like Talibs and ISIS are thinking absolutely opposite of that. It's maybe the main problem of them they have nothing to do with art. Even the, 
they are not familiar with art. The speaker of Taliban Zabiullah Mujahid some days ago said that the artists have to think about something else as a profession. So I think he doesn't understand that art is not profession, it's passion and passion is not changeable. We artists cannot live without our passion. Tell me about the CCAA, so the con- basically a contemporary art centre in Kabul that you were involved with. Is, is it right it was a very educational organisation? So CCA was the first and uh, only centre for contemporary arts in Afghanistan. I also participated in this centre during my studying at the Kabul University in 2011. At the first was uh, were a lot of uh, female artists active on that center and after 2011 also both male and female artists and now this this center is not active more because of Taliban. In your own artwork you made quite political statements when you were, when you were making art in Afghanistan. Were you able to do that freely? Or did you or did you encounter difficulties in making art even in the Afghanistan after the Taliban? Of course there was some difficulty because when we talk about these terrorist groups named Talibs, so they were existed in Afghanistan since twenty five years ago. They were not disappeared from Afghanistan. So we cannot say that Taliban at the first time and Taliban now because Taliban were existed uh, in Afghanistan all the time. And that time there was also difficulty but the reason was Talibs. But now it's a lot, you know, but now we cannot we cannot work at all. On that time we were able to work to do art. We had our difficulty but we could do something with art. Can you tell me about your performance called Farkunda? Because it, it is about a, a horrific incident that happened in, in Afghanistan involving the murder of a woman in broad daylight. Can you say something about that performance? Actually, I am a very free-thinking artist, but I think I have been more into political arts, subjects like human rights, especially human rights. So let me describe you somehow which kind of friendship there's between me and art. See, if I recognize somewhere something going wrong, for example, inequality, injustice, mainly problems, I'm going to definitely react to them in artistic way. And all these reactions at first come to my sketchbook, of course, and after that, some of them will find a medium to communicate with people outside. In the case of Farhonda also, that was um, really a big problem in Afghanistan because a woman were killed by more than 200 men and one woman. And that was cruelty and that, that was a big problem in my society, in, in my country. So I did this performance because for me, that was an exchange of identity between the people of Afghanistan and Farhonda. 
because after that we recognize as that we will be whole. We what's going wrong ideologically in us, and also Farhonda had become very famous. What Farhonda wanted to to tell the people that religion is not for sale. That religion is not for business. You can be religious. You can do something with religion, but you cannot do business with religion. And that was the problem, and that was the identity of Arkhonda that we recognize after this crime. You're now based in Germany. Can you say something about why you chose to move to Germany? Did you feel that you had to leave Afghanistan, or did you have a certain amount of freedom in, in terms of whether you stayed there or not? You know uh, why today I'm trying art day and night to help other artists to get out of the country because I was in a situation like this. For me in 2015, what doesn't matter where, like this artist today, they live in Afghanistan. I just wanted to get out of the country and save my life. But somehow, now I'm in Germany, it was not something that I choose. So it was something that destiny chose for me. I think uh, that Germany, I thought after that, as, as I was in Austria, I had to choose which country I want to leave. I didn't thought about that when I was in, in Austria, and Austria is a neighbor country of Germany. So on that time, I, I thought that maybe Germany um, had a lot of uh, possibility, a lot of opportunity for me to do my artworks, to do my studying. <laughs> now I'm I'm living in Germany, so but and I'm happy to live in Germany because I have a lot of uh, opportunity here, a lot of uh, possibilities, and I can study my MA here in media film. It was like a trip without destination for me also. Now that you are in Germany, is it right that the current subject of your work is migration, which of course is, is going to be very important in terms of refugees from Afghanistan in the coming weeks and months? Can you say something about that? Yes, after my immigration, I saw a lot of problems according to people they live here as a refugee. For example, my, I am working, for example, on a project which shows the problems of refugees. They have to wait for, for years long for asylum. In many cases, around eight years. And that's a big problem, for example. And I make art about this problem. So as I said, when I see everywhere problems, I react to them. So uh, there's a lot of difficulty in the case of migration. You know, it's another case we, we think when we get outside of the country, then everything would be good. But it's not correct because there's also a lot of problems. If you wait for eight years and you don't get a positive answer from a country, so you would not able to, to design your, your future, to have clear perspective for your future. And that's, and that's really bad. And the countries can do something to, to change this war's things. Do you have any hope that European countries, Germany and others, will take proper responsibility towards your 
Afghan compatriots in the sense that there will be very many people who will want to come to Europe now. And there is, under all sorts of conventions, an obligation on Europe to take in refugees. But do you have any hope that they will follow that, their, their human responsibility? About 15 days ago, I started to make a list of artists. They have to get out of the country. And we are still trying to find a solution to get out these people from, from, from the country because they live really in danger. They change their, their, their destination, their, their house. And some of them leave or living in, in refugees camp because they want to be alive. And up to now, we didn't have any solution to bring them out. But I hope that Germany and other Europeans country and also all country all over the world help Afghan people, especially the people they are really in danger to get out of the country. You, you know, I can hope, but I don't have any clear answer up to now uh, from the government of Germany. There is something they tell that we help, we help, but we can also only hope. Okay, well, Yama, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're most welcome. You can read more about Afghanistan at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Now, the US sound artist Bill Fontana is currently working on a project to record the sounds that the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris hears through its ten monumental bells. Fontana plans to livestream the audio at the Institut de Recherche et Coordination Acoustique Musique, or IRCAM, in Paris next year, and possibly at museums and cultural sites around the world in the future. Our editor in the Americas, Helen Stoilus, broke the news of Fontana's project in the print edition of the art newspaper, which is just out, and she spoke to Fontana about this intriguing project project. But first, here's a brief excerpt of Fontana's audio recording of Emmanuel, Notre Dame's oldest and largest bell, resonating with the sounds of Paris. So let's start off with you tell me a little bit about how you started first thinking about this project. You've created kind of similar pieces based on bells and Buddhist temples in Kyoto and the MetLife Tower in New York. Right. And then because I'd done a lot of work in London and when I discovered that the Elizabeth Tower of Big Ben was going to be closed for renovations, I had the idea of doing a sound piece with the four clock bells as a, as a live streaming sort of sound piece about the silence of Big Ben. And I'd gone so far as to really discuss it with uh, like the BBC Radio 3, who were very interested in it. But I couldn't really get anywhere with the bureaucracy of the Palace of Westminster to get get permission to really do, do a sound piece like that. And I was talking to a friend of mine in Paris, and I was telling her about this idea with Big Ben, and she said, forget about Big Ben, the most interesting silent bells in the world are right here in Paris the Ten Bells of Notre Dame. And then I started researching this and realized that the bell towers essentially were not damaged in the fire. There's some lead contamination dust in the bell towers, but the physical structure of the bell towers kind of remained intact. And the Ten Bells are there, hanging, waiting to be rung. 
And so I decided to kind of focus my energy on trying to do this, but doing this during the pandemic without having physical access to people and, and Notre Dame itself was very challenging from San Francisco. So for the last year <laughs> and a half, this project and the idea for this project became my dream and became like a form of self-therapy in a way, because I felt it was really good for me to have an incredible dream and vision of something to kind of put my energy into. And I realized it was really kind of risky to put all my energy into trying to do this because there was no certainty at all that this could happen. And like, how weren't they damaged? What, were they protected by the by the bell tower or they were just out of the way? I think that the only damage that occurred in the bell towers was really smoke and ash lead contamination. I mean, to access the bell towers, you know, you have to, I had to take a lead contamination training class wearing this, uh, you know, this special protective suit. The other thing that was amazing, just as a visual experience, being on the bell tower and on the balconies and terraces of the bell towers, I had close-up views to all these remarkable gargoyles. Oh, that's a fun treat. Oh, that was so that was so interesting to get close to these gargoyles and photograph them. Yeah, it must have been daunting, especially for a site like Notre Dame that is such a symbol for a country right. and for the heritage community, and to have seen the destruction that happened to it from the fire and the rebuilding efforts and how much people have come together. It must have been a very difficult thought to even broach it from that perspective. I think my journey uh, in trying to do this in Paris actually began with the media curator at SF MoMA, who I've worked with a lot, and I asked him, do you know any, any interesting media curators in Paris <laughs> that I can approach? And he, he was very kind and introduced me to two media curators at the Centre Pompidou, Marcello Lista and Philip Bettinelli. And they were very interested in the idea, but they were also kind of daunted by how to do something like this. Because I mean, the first issue is how do you gain access? Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, what was what was that process like? They were very, very interested and open. And, and I there was a guy in uh, a former uh, French cultural attaché who's based in Brazil who got interested in the project. So through the Centro Pompidou people, this guy in Brazil, they connected me to a couple of people in the Ministry of Culture who were very helpful. They did email introductions to me, to the then uh, Secretary General of the Restoration, Anne Manny Horn. And that introduction, over a period of time, eventually led me to be able to actually have a meeting a month ago, but a real turning point in that process, which really got people to take this seriously, is that the most important cultural institution in uh, France for sound art and contemporary music is IRCOM. And they completely got behind the idea. But also, at the same time, there was this group of researchers with an ongoing research project about the acoustic history of Notre Dame. And so... Because of that and the combination of those scientists and IRCOM, I eventually got taken seriously with wanting to do this. And there had also started to be some international interest in, in the project because the idea is this would be a live streaming work of media art. The idea is very simple. I want to install a network of sensors on each of Notre Dame's 10 bells and to create a live streaming work of art out of that. 
that would go to IRCOM initially and then eventually had the ability to travel anywhere in the world as a live streaming work of art. So there have been ongoing discussions with different institutions about this. Was it difficult getting permission to kind of go physically into the site, you know? Yes, hugely difficult. It took a year and, and a half. And I'm sure <laughs> a year and a half and kind of contacting the upper echelons of, you know, the heritage world in Paris and everywhere. Yeah, yeah, but it was a game of chess. It was a game of chess. There were many days where there was a voice inside of me that said, Bill, you're crazy. You have no idea. You're putting all this energy into this. You have no idea that you're going to do this. And it just gave me something to dream about during the pandemic because I couldn't travel anywhere. And it was really kind of good for my soul in a way to have this vision that I could think about. And then, you know, when I was back there finally in July, actually you know, having the meeting and then actually accessing the Notre Dame worksite, I had a hard time distinguishing reality from fantasy because for for so long this had been a fantasy and a dream. And then to actually be there physically in the presence of these bells. Under the Emmanuel bell, I saw a photo of you. The bell's bigger than you are. I mean, you just kind of get lost. A lot bigger. (laughs) It's a lot bigger than me. Yeah, it's It's kind of like a Goliath that that you're standing underneath. Right. I was sitting on a bench inside the bell under it, you know. So, you know, but then there's, you know, there's the nine other bells and there's issues about how you install a network and wire a network in this medieval bell tower. It's all these kind of practical. Were the Notre Dame people at all nervous about you kind of installing equipment on the bells or you said the bells were in decent condition? So it I think the bells are in decent condition. I think there's just a lot of sort of practical, technical issues to kind of solve. And the purpose of the trip I'm making in September is really to kind of sort this all out. I've got great people on the ground now in Paris. You know, I've, I've hired a, a project manager who comes out of a, somebody I'd worked with years ago at the Tate Modern when I did this Millennium Bridge piece. He worked for an engineering company called Arup. And so he he's somebody who really understood what I was doing. And speaking of Arup, one of the amazing people in Paris that I'm working with is a sound engineer, uh, who's a professor at the Sorbonne named Brian Katz, who uh, came out of Arab. And one of the things he's been doing as part of his official kind of research is to create a virtual acoustic model of the acoustics of Notre Dame as it had been before the fire. And what I'm hoping to do, you know, in the month of September is to actually, maybe by the end of September or in October, actually install the whole sensor network on the bells and get that going live, partly to actually have a chance to access the sounds and have a chance to work with them live. When it's sent to EarCom, it's also possible I'll be able to access it in my studio. And also having the real sound of 10 bells is really useful for me as I speak to other museums and institutions. So once you set up the sensors and that's streaming live, it'll be going to EarCom, the, the stream, but you'd also be able, and it'll just continue even if you leave Paris. Those those will remain on the bells? My hope is that I can put install this on the bells and have it streaming live so I can record and document the 10 bells and have long, long recordings, which I can make for my studio as well as from Earcom, but also to be able to work with the material so I really understand the most interesting way to make a piece. How long do you think the sensors would remain on the bells? That's a question I I can't answer today, but my dream or my ambition would be that if we can install the sensors on the bells successfully, 
I would like to keep them in place until the restoration of Notre Dame is finished in 2024 or 2025, which means that besides going live to IRCOM in June, it's possible subsequently that it could travel to another institution in Paris. It could travel to a museum anywhere in the world. Like you could have it streaming at the Metropolitan, you could have it streaming at Tate. Any museum that's really open and interested yeah. in doing this. And the other idea I'm thinking about, and this is you know, on my wish list of things, I would like to, once I hear the sound of these 10 bells uh, and work with that, I'm thinking it would be also interesting to make outdoor versions of it so I could place this the, the streaming sound of these resonating bells in a plaza. One of my fantasies is if I've got this network in place by next spring, the 15th of April is the third anniversary of the fire. Right. And I'd love to be able for a day to place this sound piece in the plaza in front of Notre Dame. Oh, wow, yeah. Notre Dame gets its voice back, you know, kind of after the fire. But I don't, I don't know if they're going to let me do this. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But you've been you've been working closely with the restoration teams, it sounds like, and with the Friends of Notre Dame and the, the organizations that are overseeing the restoration. And they've been on board with this. They've been kind of like supportive of... So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it would be a good way for, as well to get attention to the project. Because we've, we've seen that they need more funding for the restoration. That's going to be a much bigger... Well, also, also you know, I've, I've had discussions with this official foundation called the Friends of Notre Dame de Paris that is raising money. And I'm hoping that if my project is successful, gets out in the world, travels to these places, that it can help raise money for the restoration. And you said you did some audio studies on the bell tower this summer, and that involved putting accelerometers, but just on Emmanuel, right? Just on Emmanuel, because it was the only bell at the time that I could actually physically access because to access the other bells which were higher up i would have needed some more specialized climbing equipment oh and gosh th things like that but emmanuel was the bell that was you know kind of reasonably possible for me to access and so i thought it was just a great place to start absolutely yeah if you're going to go for one go for the biggest and the oldest <laughs> biggest and the oldest and it's a symbolic bell yeah and it just completely uh, overwhelmed me to realize that I was hearing a sound of this bell that nobody had ever heard before. But what, what did you learn about your kind of like first studies about the bells? You kind of talked about it briefly when we first started talking about this. And also, what do you think once you get the other sensors on the other bells, what do you think you might pick up from this chorus of bells in the bell tower? Those 10 bells, the other nine are, are smaller and younger than Emmanuel. And I'm imagining that it's going to be like this shimmering harmonic curtain. You know, each of these bells has its own harmonics and resonances. And so when you hear them together reacting basically to the same ambient sound of Paris and the building of Notre Dame, I imagine, and my intuitions tell me, that it's going to be this beautiful kind of harmonic curtain of these resonating vibrations. And so my goal in September is to kind of really flush this out and really know the details of this. When do you think the first public presentation will be of any sound piece from this? Well, I think right now the idea is that it would have its world premiere in Paris at IRCOM in June of next year. And after that, I'm hoping 
by then it'll be possible to schedule some future you know exhibitions of this work the other thing is if they'll let me do it is uh, on the 15th of april if i could do a one day put this sound curtain on the plaza in front of notre dame i'd really like to do that yeah i'm sure paris would like to hear that as well the parisians having seen the work go on in notre dame having something like those bells play you know well, to me, to me, the the idea that you have these bells that are actually secretly ringing all the time that nobody can hear, and and that it's a physical fact that these bells are actually vibrating all the time, it's like a spirit that's living inside of Notre Dame. It's it's not dead. It's alive, and I think it just is to me a, a very emotional, symbolic sort of use of sound. This has been a pleasure as always, Bill. Always fun talking to you. For more on Bill Fontana, visit his website at resoundings.org. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth interviews with leading artists if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentle and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Melissa, Yama, Helen and Bill. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.